0: I can honestly say that the leadership team in general does not know what I'm going to talk about. So I'm free to share what I'm going to share today. Um, I have a way, there's things that played in my life that I read the scriptures maybe different than a lot of people. And uh, there was a quote that I learned years ago. And it has shaped the way that I read scriptures. Can we have that quote? Maybe it's not there. (laughs) You don't have it? Okay, the quote is simply this The new is in the old contained, but the old is in the new explained. What it means is Christ was hidden in the Old Testament. All the way through. Everything Jesus in John 5 39 I think says the scriptures testify of me. The only scriptures he had to talk about at that time was the Old Testament, because the New Testament was not written yet. But the Old is only explained in the new by the Holy Spirit. The 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 offerings, the sacrifices, the the numbers, the illustrations of the Old Testament. Now I'm gonna need a clean next, sorry. Um I'm just going to give... Okay, I like numbers. I'm a math guy. I love numbers. I do numbers every day, all day long. It's what I do for a living. Thank you. And uh, did you know the number one is stand by itself? Any number divided by itself comes back to number one. So the number one speaks of God. Number two of covenant. Three of completeness. Now, this is just things I've come up with with study. Five is for grace. Seven is for holiness. Ten is for divine order, which is the law. Twelve is for government, the 12 tribes of Israel. And I especially look for numbers in the Old Testament that pertain to Christ. If it's a half a portion or a double portion of numbers, then I look at, you know, what is that speaking to me for? And the number five is for grace. And I look for the number five. Multiple, you know, if it's a double portion, if it's a ten, which is kind of interesting. It's a divine order for moral law is ten. Number five is for grace. And I'm just saying this to kind of give a backdrop. We have five systems in our body. The muscular, the skeletal, the nervous, the respiratory, and the uh, digestive. I think that's the five. We have five fingers, five toes, five senses. We are objects made for grace. Plain and simple. You know, that's why I like the Old Testament numbers, because it gives me a picture of who I am in Christ in the new. Um, I don't know. I have a, an illustration that God showed me, and I don't have it in my notes, but I really feel like I could share it. David took five smooth stones to overcome the enemy. What does that tell you? Grace overcomes anything you're facing. He only used one stone. And I was sitting here about three weeks ago just wrestling with God. Why just one smooth stone? And God said there's more grace than what what you're facing. So the New Testament says in Romans... Where grace abounds, sin much more abounds. See, that explains what David was doing. John says, greater is he that is in you than is in the world. David only needed 20% of the grace that he was carrying to overcome a huge enemy. So whatever you're facing today, there's more grace than what you're facing. So the, new Test, the Old Testament really is explained in the New. And then um, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction. But we're going to camp out on the word doctrine. And the only scripture that were written at this time, again, was Old Testament. So we look at the Old Testament for doctrines of grace, healing, marriage. There's just all these um, wisdom, faith. Them doctrines are all hidden in the Physical illustrations of the Old Testament. The Greek meaning for doctrine in 2 in Timothy there is um, an instruction, a function or the information of that instruction for learning and for teaching. So, what is the function on the instruction of the doctrine? tithing. See, I can preach tithing. (laughs) No, we're going to look at the doctrine of tithing according to the Old Testament, where God started it, why it was started, and how we live it out today. And I hope to give everybody a new meaning of God's heart behind why we give from our income. And, um, we're going to look at a lot of scripture. I think there's 40 some verses that I have. <laughs> so I'll try to get through it. Um, and we're just going to let the scriptures explain themselves. We're going to start in um, by looking at the offerings of the Old Testament. And we're going to start in Leviticus 2nd Leviticus. Sorry, I'm shaking. <laughs> the first uh, Leviticus 2 chapter verse 1. When you present a and you present grain as an offering to the Lord, the offering must consist of choice flour. You are to pour olive oil on it, sprinkle it with frankincense, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. The priest will scoop out a handful of flour of the flour, moistened with oil, together with frankincense, and burn the representative portion on the altar. It is a special gift, a pleasing aroma, to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering will then be given to Aaron and his son. This offering will be considered the most holy part of the special offerings presented to the Lord. Now for the next couple of verses it tells us how the how the different ways you can prepare that offering. But in verse 8 it says it again, no matter how the grain offering for the Lord has been prepared, bring it to the priest who will present it at the altar. Then take then The priest will take a representative portion of the grain offering and burn it on the altar. It is a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There again, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering will then be given to Aaron and his sons as their food. The offering will be considered the most holy part of the special gifts presented to the Lord. The word offering there is a Hebrew word, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so excuse me if I see this room. I think it's minkah. And it means to bestow. A donation. A tribute. Specifically a sacrificial offering, usually bloodless and voluntary. It's a gift or a present. Then the, there's that, that was one offering in the Old Testament. Now the second offering... That we there's really two main ones that we look at, that we read about a lot, and it's found in Genesis eight twenty, and it says then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings from the animals and the birds that had been approved for that purpose. That offering there is Ola, I think. <laughs> it's a it means a step, as in a stairs, as as ascending. As going up in smoke or to go up to. It's simply both of them offerings are an adoration or thanksgiving or worship to God. And then what I found interesting is Cain and Abel, when it was time for the harvest in Genesis 4, 3, and 4, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift to bestow the best portion of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel's offering and the gift. The word gift here is usually translated in most translations as an offering. It's the one that is used for the grain offering then in Leviticus. So this offering was used 15 times. This word is used 15 times from Genesis up to where the law was given. I hope I'm not boring you because I'm setting up a stage here. Nine times it's translated as a present, a voluntary gift that people brought to the Lord. It was before the requirement of blood sacrifices. It was something that that was not required. It was something when God God brought Noah out of the ark, he gave him a burnt offering of adoration. This is in response for something. This is just a thankfulness of what, for what you've done. Noah did it. Abraham did it. I think Lot did it. That offering was very, used very often. The burnt offering was. The other one, they, so often it was just says they give a mincal. It was an adoration offering. This was before the blood sacrifices began in Leviticus 1. It was before the law was given. It was not a law that they had to do sacrifices. It was just something that even Adam and Eve's oldest son was doing already. I'm not sure where it started, but it was, it was people's worship to God. And in Leviticus 1, it kind of changes. It gives us, you know, Exodus, we have all these laws where God set aside a people for himself And he gave us this direction in Leviticus 1, verse 2. Give the following instruction to the people of Israel. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd or your cattle or your flock of sheep and goats. That offering is the first time it's used in Scripture, and it was after the law was given. And it's it's korban, which means something brought near an altar or a sacrificial present. That's all it means. It was the first time that offering was mentioned in Scripture. It had been generations that they, were selling, well, that they were offering, but they had never had to offer something as a blood sacrifice. It was just a voluntary adoration worship to God. There was no need for a blood offering up to that time point because we get a glimpse of it in Romans 5.13 where it says, Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin because there was not any law to break. They had not been guilty for breaking God's law, so there was no need for a blood sacrifice, which pointed to Jesus Christ. All the offerings that were given before then were out of an adoration or love for God. It was not a requirement. That's the point I'm trying to get across. It is something that they did because they adored their God. Then in Hebrews 9.22... It gives us the reason for the blood offering. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So after the law was given, people were guilty. They needed forgiveness. So God set up the blood sacrifice for them to be made right with him when they failed. But let's go back to the minchah offering. Remember, it's a gift. It's a donation. It's tribute. It's usually bloodless and voluntary, and it's a present. God had promised the children of Israel, or his people, that he is going to send a redeemer from the fall in the garden. But it seemed like everybody just kind of did their own thing. They worshipped when they wanted to. They they kind of lived the way they wanted to. They were not living for God. It was not counted to them, like in Romans uh, 5 says, but it was still had physical consequences. They still died. And the wages of sin is death. So God wanted to have them, a people for himself, where he could be dwell amongst them. They could shine forth his glory by living his laws that will bring life. Instead of just everybody doing their own thing and, no, and really having no direction. And ended up, God was not seen anywhere on earth, hardly. So he set up a people and a way for them to redeem to be atoned for when they filled his laws that he had given them does that make sense where I'm going and in Galatians 3.19 it says this why then was the law given it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised God gave his law through the angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. And then in, chapter, in verse 24, just five verses later, Paul says this way. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. So the law was given so that people, so that God can dwell among a people, that his habitation would be a group of people that would be ministered to, And would have a holiness that would bring them life. So the world around them, actually, it says the Gentiles around them were jealous sometimes in the old testament. You get glimpses of that. They were jealous. We heard what your God did in Jericho. You know, we're afraid of him because we heard. And so, but before the law was given, that was not the case because Abraham did his thing, Lot did his thing, you know, they just kind of all were scattered. And then, in that setting up, the ministry of the Old Testament priests was this. In Malachi 2.7, it says, The words of the priest's lips shall preserve knowledge of God, and the people should go to him for instruction. For the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies. They needed a central location, a teacher, somebody anointed, somebody that was on, on, on time all the time, on duty to minister. And I have read the Old Testament. I can only imagine in the desert the stench of blood. They had to literally slaughter hundreds if not thousands of animals a year for the people. There was an offering at 9 o'clock in the morning in our time and 3 o'clock in the afternoon every day for no reason at all except just to remember their sinfulness. That's the doctrine of repentance that the church is leaving. And is it something that Jesus said, if the daily sacrifices are taken away, there's going to be an abomination of desolation, which means a death, that, a lifelessness that God hates standing in the holy place, which is the place where, in the temple where people worshipped. It wasn't the most holy. It was where the people gathered. And in America today... We see a lifelessness in the holy place that is stenched our God's nostrils because we have not remembered, we have forgotten the daily sacrifice of Jesus Christ and who we are in need of that. See, the Old Testament and the New Testament really do enhance each other. (laughs) It it was such a full time job. I cannot imagine. I I grew up at home where we slaughtered our own meat i mean i'm a carnivore to the to the teeth (laughs) i like meat and so i we we ate a lot of meat and i know how long it took to slaughter three hogs for our family for the whole year and it it was not just a three-hour affair it was a couple day affair to all the meat was preserved for the for the rest of the year That was the priest's job, full-time, to teach the people the ways of God. And different places in Scripture, I didn't have room for it all, it talks about the priest's job was to preserve the knowledge of God. Let's go back to Leviticus 2, why the grain offering was given. The grain offering was a gift it was an act of worship because it was voluntary, out of thankfulness. I tell you, Kenton, you, your introduction to, <laughs> to worship and thankfulness was like, yeah. <laughs> according to how this offering was used in the scripture before, according to how it was used, it was an act of worship. It was voluntary, and God used that offering for the funding of the ministry of the temple. Twice in that portion of scripture we read, it says were these words, considered a most holy part of the special gift. The most holy part wasn't one that was burnt off given to God. That shocked me when I read that. That twice in one chapter it says the most holy part was what was given to the priests to fund their ministry. That was more holy to God than what was offered to him on the on the altar. So what does that mean to us? What does that mean to in the New Testament? We have that backdrop, that doctrine, them pictures of Old Testament. See, God made some of us that we need pictures. I can't, I can't read instructions. It makes no sense. But give me instructions, pictures, I'm good to go. I can build a million-dollar house with a blueprint, but don't have me read the lawyer's directions on, on the contract. You know, I, So God gave us pictures in the Old Testament, and that's maybe why I enjoy the Old Testament, because it has a lot of pictures. But what does all that mean to us today? God gave us leaders with responsibilities. I weep because of the misuse of that. And how when I came to, when, when I met Aaron for the first time, I guarantee I, he still has nightmares. Because <laughs> there was a leader that I was going to prove wrong on every way I could. Because <laughs> leaders had one thing in mind that was to control me. And I do not control well. I'm sorry. <laughs> but Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Obey your spiritual leaders. And do what they say. Their work is to watch over your soul. And they are accountable to God. That, first time I read that and it sunk in, it was like, oh my. I'm glad I'm not called to be a pastor. I would have to give account for every one of you before God. Let that sink in. The responsibilities of Aaron and Ruth and April and Jamie and Canton and all the leaders here. They have to give account for me before God. Not, I have to give account for myself. But here it says, they, have, they are accountable to God for what happens to my soul. And I'm not trying to put a lot of pressure on leadership. This is the reality of Scripture according to the Old Testament priests. That was their job. It says, to give them a reason to do it with joy and not sorrow. That would certainly not be to your benefit. And in 1 Peter 5 2, it says, Care for the flock that God entrusted to you. Watch it, over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. And it's talking about leaders there. The word care for there in King James says feed. Um, I read, well, I know German, put it like that. The German, it says, take out the pastor. As a shepherd, I used to have sheep. I grew up in a home where we had sheep. Sheep are susceptible to parasites. They're susceptible to insects. They're susceptible to disease. They need fresh food, fresh water. They're very fragile animals in a sense. If we'd have fed them a little bit on Sunday morning, we'd have had sheep for maybe a month. It's a full-time job to feed the flock. To watch over them, to take care of them, to, move, to make sure that the food they're getting is not full of disease, that they're fresh water. It's a full-time job. I grew up in, in, in churches. I went through churches where that was actually preached against, that we have full-time pastors. Because they're going to get itching ears and just listen to what people want to hear. If we pay them. And that's what I believed when I came here to this church. And God started showing me things in scripture. Do we expect our pastors to have two jobs? Do we expect them to have a secular career? See, I can, I'll tell you, I can preach this message. <laughs> and still full-time watch for my soul because that's what they're accountable for. They're not accountable for their secular career. In other words, do accept them to have a secular job and still watch out for my soul full-time and still have time to raise a family. Think of that. How many of you have an eight-hour-a-day job? Then you have a home to take care of. Then you have children or grandchildren or a wife. When would you watch out for 600 people sold? I'm just asking you a question. And yet, that's what we expect. There's a reason. Typically, growing up, the preacher's kids were the wildest. They just were. Because daddy was never there for them. And I started preaching this back in my old church, well, three churches ago, whatever it was. (laughs) I've been kicked out of a couple. I'm freer than most. I may be freer than most people. <laughs> but anyway, I was shut down. I mean, they, they was, they, there was no discussion on it. The pastor cannot be paid, or he will do it for money. And that's what I believed. Let's go to 1 Timothy 5 17 and 18. There's a picture here that Paul uses, he uses a lot of New Testament scriptures. I mean, Old Testament scriptures when he's writing letters to the church. Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well. That is New Testament Bible. Especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out grain. And again in another place, those who work deserve their pay. Then in 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 11, what soldier has to pay for his own expenses? What farmer plans a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of the fruit? What shepherd of the flock, what shepherd for a, who cares for a flock of sheep isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely human opinion, or does the law say the same thing? For the law says... For the law of Moses says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out grain. That scripture is used twice in the New Testament. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us, the one who plows And the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share in the harvest. Since we've planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to harvest, a harvest of physical food and drink? Paul was an apostle. He was a leader. He was going around starting churches. He was leading churches. He was teaching them. And he would spend three years in one church just to get him on track, get the elders set in place. And then this was his direction. Now, the ox treading out grain. I thought I knew what it meant. I was right, but as I did research, it brought out a whole new meaning. And it, Paul uses Deuteronomy 25.4. It's a whole list of laws, and right in between there, it's just like throwing in for no reason. <laughs> I think we have a picture of that, right? They would, have, they would have a threshing floor, and they could thresh the wheat by beating the hulls out with sticks and getting the grain out of the shells, the hulls. Or they would tie oxen together, and this is still happening in third world countries, where they would pile all the grain on the threshing floor, then they would take oxen in circles, and their hooves would break out holes. And then they take the straw and throw it in the air, the chaff blows away, the straw drifts over, and the wheat falls down, so they have three different values separated Why does Paul use that description? Why is that all the way back in Deuteronomy for us today? We all have holes. We all have shells around the fruit, the wheat. The wheat that God placed in me to feed the world, the bread of life, his word, has a shell of hardness around it. It is the pastor's responsibility to break through that shell. But he's to eat of the fruit of that work as he does it. According to the history of that doctrine. And it's God's gift to us. We are the recipients of God's gift. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 said, Now these are the gifts Christ, Jesus himself, gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people for the work for his work, and to build up his church, the body of Christ. Our pastors, our leaders, are God's gift to us because we as a group need direction. We need equipping. There's a world out there that's going to hell. We have the food inside of us for them. The pastor's responsibility is to break open that fruit and release it and equip us to use it. I'm putting a lot on you, Aaron. 2 <laughs> <laughs> Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconcilia- reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. I'm so glad that I heard that message one day. I was seated on an unpadded bench in a home church. And we had a pastor who dared to preach the gospel in its pure form. He was literally kicked out of the church for it a year and a half later. But I heard that message of reconciliation, and I, I, I was up to the task. I wanted to help spread the world. It wasn't long. It was like four, less than six months later, we were. I'll just say excommunicated, because I was trying to share that message with the people that were hard-hearted. Has has anybody in here ever heard Galatians 6, 7? Don't be deceived, God is not mocked, but every man sows, what shall he also reap? Anybody ever hear that verse? I've heard it all my life. If you sin, you're going to reap. If you're not nice to your wife, you're going to reap. it. It was always in the area of sin. Paul wrote to the Galatians that anything they do besides faith in Christ, circumcision, anything, is a perverse gospel. Then he gets to verse chapter six, the last part of his letter, and he writes these three verses: "Those who are taught the Word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them." Then it's that verse, "Don't be misled." This is the new living translation. "You cannot mock the justice of God." You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest death, decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the spirit will harvest everlasting life of the spirit. Now, that's kind of hard to understand without the Old Testament picture that goes behind it. I, I, put, I mean, this is what God showed me. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel had their church. Their temple, their Jerusalem, which was the place of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. Well, they weren't following God, so they were exiled to a foreign land. And Nehemiah was exiled, and he heard that Jerusalem was in ruins, and he was sad. So his, he got commissioned, I guess by his Gentile king, to go and rebuild his home, the, the, the town of his ancestors. So he went, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, set up all the gates, put in all the offerings and stuff back in place, so that people would have a place, well God would have a place to be with his people again. Then he went back to serve the Gentile king again. And a couple years later, he heard this, that Jerusalem was in shambles again. Things were just falling apart. And then he, said, then he writes this. When I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned of, say the word, <laughs> Elishab's <laughs> evil deed of providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyard of the temple of God. I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room, demanding. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified. I brought back the articles of the God's temple, for God's temple, the grain offerings, and the frankincense. The grain offerings are mentioned. Not the blood offerings, but the grain offerings were mentioned. I also discovered that the Levites had not been given the pre- their prescribed portions of food, so that the, they and the singers who were to conduct the worship service had all returned to work their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, Why is the temple of God neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. In Galatians it says if we do not provide for them that that teach us and we only live to satisfy our own selfish desires, we're going to reap death and decay. And we cannot mock that justice of God. In the Old Testament, when the Levites had to be bivocal, the guards of the temple were gone. The daily sacrifices were gone. And the world started using that place for their own desires and needs. I just described the American church. How many people? You're looking at somebody who hated authority in a church five years ago. And now I respect it and honor it, and I love the way God set it up. And I hope that's what comes out. But what is my response to that? Am I willing for them to be bivocal and not be able to watch the flock to care for them so that the world can creep in and bring all kinds of stuff in our storehouses and it's used for every fleshly lust in the world under the name of grace has anybody ever heard Philippians 4.19 and my God shall supply all your needs you have a hospital bill that's quoted to you believe me I know (laughs) you have a financial need But if we look at the verses in that context, Philippians 4.15. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave to me financially, financial help, when I brought you the good news, then traveled on from there to Macedonia. No other church, church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a word for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I'm generously supplied with gifts you sent me with that guy. They are sweet. That, here's that verse. Here's that phrase. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice. The grain offering was a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And the same God, there's that verse, who, took, who supplied for, for me for ministry through you will now supply all your needs. Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Galatians 7 and Philippians 4, 19 are both in context of funding ministry. It's not in context for individual use like we hear it quoted. So how much should we give? The widow gave two pennies in Mark 12 and Jesus said it was the largest sum given that day. I mean, it's not the amount. Now, this next couple of verses, this next couple of scriptures are talking about giving to those in need, not supporting the poor. But I think it still applies. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. That's how much you should give, eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. I recently had a guy ask me, what should I do? I I bled a man to the Lord, and he gave all his money away and was stuck in Cleveland without gas money to come home. And I use this scripture here. And he said, that's the answer. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. Now, this is 2 Corinthians 8, 12 through 15. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty to can share with you when you need it. We are God's checkbook to each other. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over and those who gathered only little had enough. Who would have thought that God is trying to teach us something on the gathering of manna in the desert? But that's the verses Paul was using in the Old Testament on how we should have, our hearts should be for each other and our leaders. Remember this, this is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 9. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God will generously supply all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, there again, Old Testament scriptures, <laughs> they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Do you get a picture of where, what we're saying this morning? God put us here to fund his work here on earth. In Malachi 3, let's go back to the Old Testament, and, a, and a, there is a... Uh, um, Malachi three eight through ten, should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But I. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You cheated me in tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all your tithes into the storehouse, so there will be enough food in my temple. This place has electric bills. This place has rent. Is there I don't know. I don't know anything about the finance of our church. I'm just saying what I'm what God shared with me. Is there enough food in this temple for the work that God has for us? Are we thankful for that? And how do we live out our thankfulness? Says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. God literally commands us to put him to a test in this. James 4 gives us a warning, though. When we ask, we don't get because our motives are all wrong. We want only to get what will give us pleasure. So it's not God's fault. He never fails. His promises aren't wrong. His promises are not void. The only way his promises don't come through is if we have the wrong motives. And then in James 7, 2, 17 and 18. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now someone may argue some have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Words put to action are what really, truly shows what's in our heart. The verses prior to that is saying, if you see a brother in need, he's cold, he's hungry, and you say, be warm and well-fed, but you don't give him any clothes and food, what's that going to profit him? Paul uses that analogy, I mean, James uses that analogy to tell us that if we say we have faith, but we don't back it up with actions, it is dead and is useless. So how thankful are we that God gave us the opportunity to be saved? I'm just going to ask a bunch of questions. Because these are the questions God asked me. And I'm telling you, tithing has been one of my strongest, we- strongest weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> I have struggled with tithing, with money. We always have needs that we think we have. How thankful are they we that He placed a godly leadership over us? How excited are we that we've been given the message of reconciliation to share with others? How exciting is it that we get to be involved in God's eternal plan to help his lost children find their home in him as we walk by faith in doing our part? We aren't all called to be leaders, but we're all called to be involved. Last but not least, how thankful are we that we get to help provide a place, a physical location where all this can take place called Free People Church? I'm going to share one testimony, <laughs> if I can say it. As some of you know, we had a huge hospital bill because my wife and I had a, were T-boned by a semi. She was in the hospital for 70 days. We had a hospital bill that was Astronomical. And we were young, we had a family, so we took the lowest bracket of the sharing plan of Christian Healthcare Ministries, which covered us for one hundred twenty-five thousand. Our hospital bills together was close to three quarter million. They paid my my bill personally was under one hundred twenty-five thousand, so CHM paid for that. But they were not; they were only, and her bill was huge. And so when I came home from the hospital, I, I quit giving to free people, to, to residents back then. I said, God would understand that I have bills to pay, and I don't know how these are going to get paid, but i want to do my best. I'm going to try hard. And so God let me go for a while, and I couldn't really converse with my wife about it because of her, the injury that she had to her brain. But it was just on my own, I decided I'm not going to tithe. And about six, eight months later, God s- said, you made decisions based on what you believe on your wife getting well. And I had my, we had our moments of doubt, but in general, we made plans for her to come home. We made plans of how she's going, how we're going to take care of her. We, we, we put plans in place based on what, we've, what I felt that I was making decisions, or we were making decisions based on our faith, not on what the doctor's telling us that she will never, she'll be in a nursing home and all that. And God said, you made decisions based on faith when it comes to healing, but you're not doing that with your finances based on your hospital bill. So I started giving, again, what I felt God wanted us to give. January of this year, we got a letter from the hospital. It took them three years. They weren't... They weren't calling us every week, every month. In fact, they had not sent us a bill for a year and a half. I didn't know what was going on with the bill. But this is the point. If I had to give, according to my current salary, every paycheck would have taken 10% and sent to the hospital. It would have taken me 70 years to pay off what they threw off. A lifetime. Put God to a test if you have a problem. Support the ministry. Be thankful. Do the grain offering. Bring it voluntarily. The most important, the most holy part that you can give is not for the, the, the widow out there. It's what funds the ministry according to all the scriptures I could research. Because it's the ministry then that'll take care of the widows out there. But if we do it as a group and we all ask God... How do you want me to get involved? What do you want me to do? How much do you want me to get involved? God works through, p- through groups. He works through individuals. There's gifts. But them gifts are only to enhance the ministry of the group. They're not for individual use. Gifts are not ministries. People get that mixed up. Gifts are to enhance the ministry of reconciliation. So the focus God is always blesses the giving for ministry the most from what I can understand. Now, I don't like routine, I don't like protocols. I can't even follow a recipe it's too much like following rules. I'll just be honest, I am I'm a loose cannon that my my God put a bullet put a bolt in me and call it's called Rosie, (laughs) but we decided that we have a credit card that every month our auto pays, like the things that we can pay on auto pay, our, our bills, and we support four different ministries, three of them besides this church are all on auto pay, so once a month, I easily go get this, pay that credit card off, and I know every month, my tithe is gonna be non-negotiable. It's first, it's set up, it's on that credit card. I don't have to worry about bringing a check to church. I don't have to worry about going to the bank and getting cash. I'll do it next week, I forgot. Well, next week comes around, I forget again. Pretty soon, I'm a month out. Well, man, I can't give that much money today. So we just, that's how practical, we try to be practical. We just put it on an (laughs) (laughs) auto-pay, sorry. So that was just, I felt that God really wanted us to just get a different picture of tithing. It's not about God being greedy. It's not about us being blessed. It's simply how much do I adore my Lord and what he's done for me.